Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the rate-banding podcast of record for the discussion of health law policy. We're recording this episode on February the 10th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host, who still believes I'm an alternative fact. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we welcome Judith Solomon, Vice President for Health Policy at the Nonpartisan Research and Policy Institute, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. There she focuses on Medicaid and CHIP and issues related to the implementation of health reform, particularly policies to make coverage available and affordable for low-income people. Uh, Wonderful to have you on the pod, Judy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about CBPP, the types of analysis and testimony that you're involved in, and and, uh, your particular role. So we are a, as you said, nonpartisan public policy institute founded in 1981 um, by Bob Greenstein, who is still our president. And we work on a range of issues, uh, including budget, tax, health, food assistance programs and income security programs, all with a focus on how these programs could best serve low income, low and moderate income people. Yes. And I want to say that I have frequently used uh, CBPP's analyses, um, most recently, actually, in something I was doing on education finance, where I was looking at some work on fair value accounting. So I've really come to rely on it as a uh, arbiter of uh, the uh, fiscal impact of programs. Now, in terms of our health uh, focus, one of the things I was wondering about, Judy, is, you know, looking back on the ACA, a lot of folks were saying, you know, in 2016, that there were problems before the election, including, say, lack of plans in rural areas, rising out-of-pocket expenses, etc. Is your general sense that the ACA exchanges, etc., were sustainable without any federal legislative intervention, you know, say, before the election, or might have needed more of a infusion of cash or other things from on the federal level? So I think, you know, we can we can talk about sort of the minimum and the and the optimal. So I think before the election, uh, many in D.C. and and elsewhere, and certainly uh, folks here at the Center on Budget working on on health, felt that there were some things that could be done to improve the law. You know, as you know, the law passed um, with... uh, no Republican support, and we were never even able to have a technical amendment bill, which is unprecedented for a law of the complexity and and reach that the ACA has. So it's not perfect, that's for sure. Um, Could it have continued without any change? I think the answer is yes. The folks that I work with who have looked at this and others, including uh, some of the rating organizations like Standard & Poor, have said that last year was a difficult year uh, and that they expected... 2017, if nothing else changed, to to have stability. So I think, yes, it could continue, uh, but yes, it also could be made a lot better. And in terms of thinking about the overall fiscal impact of the ACA, where would you say has been sort of the most positive fiscal impact, both short-term and long-term, of uh, implementation of the ACA? Fiscal impact? I mean, I, I think 
our focus as much men, you know, in the, in the work that I do, I mean, our budget and tax people are probably the ones that can answer that. I'm, I'm much more focused on the coverage that it's provided to 20 million people in the, in the U.S., including, you know, the Medicaid expansion as a, as a large part of that, which, um, still 19 states have not taken up, but in the states that have taken it up, it, it has had a fiscal impact on state budgets, uh, where states have shown savings as they've been able to lower the amount of spending on uncompensated care, mental health, other things that were solely the province of the state until the expansion took effect. Got it. Yes, I, I do think that is a major issue, and I think that's going to be, if there's any sort of unwinding, uh, even the uh, uh, Republican governors are going to have quite a lot of concerns there. So your answer, uh, Judy, uh, included some facts. Um, and Deborah Stone in The Wonderful Policy Paradox, uh, who said, you know, policy analysis is political argument and vice versa. In a world where values sort of uh, masquerading as facts, um, where does information influence policy in DC now? Uh, are, are facts important in the uh, the processes that are going forward, or have we sort of entered a fact-free area where um, some of the deeper um, fact-based research that you present, uh, uh, where that is is getting more and more sidelined? I think facts are still important. I think we've seen that in the in the debate over the uh, repeal of the ACA. I think it was expected, if you remember, that there would be a bill repealing the ACA ready for President Trump to sign on the day of his inauguration. And we are so far from that with not any consensus. And I would ascribe that in large part to two facts, uh, two sets of facts that were very similar. First, the analysis that urban Institute researchers did that showed the the claim that by delaying repeal of the Medicaid expansion and the subsidies um, for coverage of people in the in the marketplaces for two years while they enacted replace would not hold steady that beginning as early as the first year you would see people lose coverage because of the repeal of the individual mandate and because of the overall uncertainty around the law leading insurers to to exit and that was followed by uh, analysis of the Congressional Budget Office finding even even more of an impact in that first year. So I think once that came out, the claim that you could do no harm by repealing and leaving the subsidies in place and the Medicaid expansion in place and everybody would be fine while they figured out what to do um, as a replacement, that just became very clear along with the fact that it, there is no replace plan and, and nothing really that in any way would measure up against the what the success of the Affordable Care Act has been. So I really see those two things, those two analyses as being um, extremely influential in, in stopping the train from going as quickly as everyone expected. Do we know how many trains there are? I mean, so much of the discussion, I think, has been about 
repeal, replace, and then, of course, the additional uh, alliteration of repair. But I wonder whether that, in fact, is the the smaller thing that's going on, the, the, the lesser of the trains. And, and sort of riffing off a, a piece that Drew Altman did today, that really the, the train you want to be watching is not the repeal, replace, repair ACA one. It's the long-term plan to move Medicare to a um, premium support system and Medicaid to block grants. Which ball or ball should we be concentrating on? Well, I think the the whole issue around the ACA is still incredibly important and is still very active in play. I, I certainly agree with, with Drew's piece on Medicaid. Uh, you know, Medicare seems to be at least in the short term off the table, although we know that Speaker Ryan has wanted to uh, pursue the premium support idea for a long time. And I think if he sees an opening, he definitely will try that. Medicaid, I think, is coming up more quickly than anyone expected. I think the thought was that this first um, round would be the repeal of the expansion, repeal of the ACA provisions, and then later in the year, perhaps as part of the second reconciliation bill for the 2018 budget, we would see proposals on Medicaid to change the structure of the program from the federal-state partnership it is now, where the federal government matches state expenditures to a capped funding system um, through a block grant or a per capita cap. The difference of those two being only that for a per capita cap, the the capped amount is um, varies based on the number of people enrolled in a block grant. It's it's a flat amount that doesn't take enrollment into effect, and and that was sort of where we were thinking. Um, now it looks like that Medicaid piece um, might be moving up to be part of the initial, um, at least on the House side. It's not so clear that's that's the will on the Senate side, but that there may be some activity around Medicaid in, a, in addition to the expansion, the broader Medicaid program, uh, as soon as, um, you know, March when they're scheduled to mark up the the repeal bill. So I, I think repeal is still, you know, very, very important. I think there's a lot going on. I think, you know, we, we haven't seen a plan other than some components of a plan that they are talking about that will not in any way measure up things like high-risk pools and selling insurance across state lines and further use of health savings accounts um, on the ACA side. But we're certainly hearing more and more about some moves to restructure the, radically restructure, I would say, the Medicaid program away from the longstanding partnership that it, that's the federal government has had with states. And just to follow up on that, um, you have a post, and we'll be sure to link to this on our uh, show page, that describes how a per capita cap is designed to significantly reduce federal Medicaid funding to states relative to current law. And I was wondering if you could explain that impact. It's it's an enormous impact. And the way the program works now is that the federal government matches state expenditures. And if the need goes up, if health spending goes up, if there's an epidemic, if there's any kind of new drug, um, in the federal government is there to pay its share. 
under a per capita cap, it's designed right at the outset to have the capped amounts provided by the federal government grow more slowly than healthcare costs are anticipated to grow. So you have this built-in shortfall right from the get-go, and then you have the additional risks um, that states would bear of unanticipated costs, the, the kind of events I talked about. But there's another um, cost that is not built in um, that is actually anticipated, and that's the aging of the population. And I think that's where states should be particularly concerned because in designing a cap, you're using current expenditures, and and there would be separate caps for you know seniors, people with disabilities, children, etc. But the cap for seniors would be based on the composition of a state's Medicaid beneficiaries over 65 today where you have a, a greater number sort of clustered at the, at, we call them the young old because of the, the baby boomers. Now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you have old old with obviously much greater need, but your cap has been set based on this, this lesser amount and it's been growing um, there. So you have this sort of built-in shortfall based on seniors, based on the cap being set at a level, the growth level less than expected, and then you have the further risk of unanticipated events. So uh, states are at risk. States have to be the ones to decide where to make cuts. Uh, the federal government is, you know, has to figure out a formula, but once they do that, they're kind of out of the game and it's all up to the states. Do the uh, the cap proposals take care of the counter-cyclical nature of Medicaid or is something else necessary there? And if so, what? So in the, in the block grant, definitely not because in the block grant, you're getting a, a flat amount that's based on your you know, current enrollment and your current spending, and and that will only grow based on um, an in, an index that sets be, that's set below what health spending is expected to grow. The per capita cap is is often said to be a, a compromise because it would allow for population growth, but there's some real doubts about that because if the you know depending on on where those caps are set on a per person basis, there's still enough short fall, that's going to really force states probably to uh, cut people from the program. So it, it definitely doesn't provide that same countercyclical uh, protection that Medicaid does in the case of a recession where more people end up needing to come into the program. The thing I was wondering, you know, in, in reviewing uh, some of your work on uh, the block grant proposals and other things like that, is you pointed out that, first of all, a lot of this block granting, it's clearly a reduction of funding to Medicaid, that it would radically change the federal-state partnership, that, moreover, the vulnerable low-income beneficiaries are likely to be at particular risk. And you explained why, you know, in terms of talking about how both co-pays reduce low-income people's use of care and also how uh, raising or reducing how much care is paid for or how much is paid for care 
reduces access. Is there any hope in the courts at all, do you think, in terms of like potential challenges to this? Because I, I have to wonder in terms of like, it seems that the biggest worry is that if the cuts become too great, the Medicaid card just becomes something that's like worthless. You know, it can't really get you care anywhere. And I wonder if there's any sort of backstop of doctrine anywhere that could stop this. Or do you think that essentially it's really this is a battle that has to be fought at the legislative level? I think it's at the legislative letter because what they're really doing is, um, you know, removing the entitlement. And to the extent there's any individual rights here, it's when the program is an entitlement where everyone who's eligible um, is entitled to to enroll and get the the benefits of the program. Part of the the promise that federal policymakers are saying to states is, if we do this, we're going to give you a lot more flexibility. So all those rules that are in the current program that protect beneficiaries would also be gone. So unless there's, I you know, I could see some states where they have protective legislation where there might be uh, opportunities. Uh, for litigation if people lose their coverage or lose benefits. But at the federal level, I don't think so because they're just going to redesign the rules of the game and and there's really nothing that you could sue on given we don't have any constitutional rights here to health care. Frank, Sarah Rosenbaum in uh, the Commonwealth Fund piece uh, recently raised Goldberg and Kelly, the welfare case, not as a sort of a rights-based pushback, but at least sort of some process pushback, a sort of hindrance maybe to rollback, particularly of Medicaid expansion. Fascinating. No, that's really good to hear because I think that just to, it seems as though some of these changes are so sudden and they're real sea changes and uh, it's just very troubling to see how qu- how quickly the whole thing could be changed. The non-expansion states have a rather odd kind of stake in this debate, don't they? In that they kind of towed the policy line and said, you know, as, because of our philosophical differences with the ACA, we're not going to expand Medicaid. And how are they going to be treated in the new world of Medicaid? There's no answer to that. And I think it's one of the issues that's actually, you know, really uh, surfacing. Um, The states that have expanded, including a number of states with, you know, Republican governors, uh, have who have embraced expansion, um, Ohio, Governor Kasich, uh, Michigan, Governor Snyder, Nevada, Governor Sandoval are, you know, very concerned. I think the other states that haven't been able to expand, in many cases, it's actually state legislatures that have prevented that, not governors. If you think about states like Virginia and Idaho, all those states in the, in the yeah, yeah. mountain states of all, you know, governors have all wanted to to do it there was a great piece in the in the post today in the front of the post about Idaho and and you know how they then decided they would try to do something different than the expansion and and weren't able to come up with anything so um i think they're saying you know if we're going to have capped funding can we have that in our base? Is this fair? And I think it's it's a dilemma for policymakers, particularly in the Senate, uh, where they they have to think about holding on to all the votes. And I don't. I think this is one of the live issues, and I don't know where it's going. Talking of expansion states, I think back in August you did a really interesting piece comparing Medicaid expansion in Kentucky and Indiana, and in that you suggested some of the Indiana. Hip 2.0 features 
may have reduced uh, enrollment. Um, given that the HIP 2.0 architecture is about to be the new CMS administrator, would you like to to, to uh, follow up a little on that and, and tell us a little bit more yeah, about those yeah. ideas? Yeah, I actually posted a blog this week on, you know, on Indiana again, because they have um, filed for a three-year extension of Healthy Indiana, and it's a good time to really look at the evidence and see whether as a demonstration project, which is what these, um, what we call waivers really are, they're, they're experiments to try to see if there's ways of doing things that meet the objectives of the Medicaid statute, and that's the, the criteria that the Secretary supposed to use. Um, I think um, a couple of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to, to say whether um, enrollment has been less than expected. We do know that in general, premiums do keep people out. I think the real bigger question is in Indiana, particularly if you're thinking about extending it or, or applying it in other states, is what has happened to the people in what they call the basic plan. And, and the way that health Indiana is designed is that if you pay a premium, you don't have any cost sharing. And um, if your income is below the poverty line and you don't pay a premium, you can still participate, but you have cost sharing. So you have to pay when you go to the doctor and get a prescription and so on. And, and about a third of the people are in the basic plan and have co-pays. And, and when you hear uh, Seema Verma, who's, who's up for the role of administrator, or Vice President Pence talk about it, they tout the fact that the people who pay the premium are getting care at a higher rate, that they're less likely to use the emergency room. And they, you know, they basically make it sound like it's because they're paying the premium. There's absolutely no evidence that that's the case. We don't know, for example, if these are the people who would have used preventive care anyway. What I've really focused on is the third of the people in BASIC and looked at the fact that they are less likely to get preventive primary care, more likely to use the emergency room, and less likely to be adherent to their maintenance drugs. And, and the reason for that is is pretty obvious. The policy is that if you're in the in the plus plan, the the no no copay plan, you get a three month supply of prescriptions without any cost sharing. If you're in the basic plan, you get a one month supply and you have to make a, a payment, a copayment every every month. So it's you know, these are very low income people. We're talking about people with incomes below the poverty line being asked to pay four dollars um, a month for these prescriptions. So, you know, in my mind, this is enough to really say we need to, we need to stop this. We've got a, a pretty large cohort of people who are doing, um, poorly. When you look at the, the, uh, distribution, if you look at all African Americans in the program, half of them are in the basic plan. So it's, it's disproportionate to the overall population. And if you think about disparities, you know, you have something to worry about. So the, you 
know, I sort of joke and say, I look at this as the glass is half empty, the state is looking at it as the glass is half full. But if we really are serious about having these be demonstration projects, and it's time to consider whether they should continue, I think there's a there's really a do no harm uh, issue here. And we have to think about what is going on with these people in the basic plan. Actually, if you read the, um, as I'm sure you have, the uh, the application to extend HIP 2.0, uh, the sort of the preamble of that uh, makes it sound actually that the glass is completely full. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah. One of the things in terms of following up on some of these, you know, experiments that are done, and I, I really like your characterization of these interventions as experiments because I think that helps sensitize us to the idea that you know these are people's lives at stake, and there's very uh, and there's a lot of risk involved in changing uh, a program. I, I saw that you blogged back in the middle of 2016 about Matt Bevan's proposal for a Medicaid waiver in Kentucky, which you know would remove vision and dental care, but then say that if the beneficiaries completed this health-related or community engagement activities, then they'd get rewards to help pay. And I'm just wondering if you could comment a bit on this trend, you know, and and some of the the unexpected or expected downsides of this effort to sort of condition all these different benefits on different activities um, for what appears to me to be a pretty vulnerable and hard-pressed population already. Yeah, that's the other place where we have some really good evidence, not only from Indiana, but also from Michigan and Iowa, and, you know, which have tried in, in not as punitive ways, I would say, in Michigan and Iowa. Um, to to really sort of tie rewards to healthy behaviors, and um, what you really see is that these very what become very complicated programs. Uh, there's there's virtually no understanding of them, so they can't be an incentive. Um, and that is definitely the case in Indiana where, you know, they have these accounts and if you do things, you get to roll over some of the money so you don't pay premiums the following year. And when, you know, the evaluator did the survey, they found that, you know, 60% of the people, only 60% of the people even knew, had heard of the accounts. And then of those who had heard of them, 75% knew they had one. So, you know, it's really hard to have an incentive that works if you don't know about it. I'm <laughs> particularly even more concerned about about Kentucky for a couple of reasons. Number one, this this whole idea of, you know, earning your benefits. But there's another feature of it around the accounts that is is really essentially discriminatory of, of people who need health care. So what they say is that you everybody gets a thousand dollars in their account. And if any amount at the end of the year, you can take half of it and then put it in this rewards account where you then can buy your dental and your vision. But if you think about $1,000, a lot of people, you know, need to use $1,000 worth of, of health care. So you're basically saying to somebody, you know, there's this premise that people are somehow, this is a discretionary purchase, right? That you can decide whether or not you want to spend your $1,000 account. But if, you know, if I have an accident or I have a chronic condition, I'm going to blow through that $1,000 very quickly and then I can't get dental or vision. On the other hand, you could be encouraging people who need, you know, their teeth fixed to, to not get other care because they want to save um, that money and roll it over. So I think on its face, it's not an appropriate use of demonstration authority. And it's going to be really interesting to see if now that Seema Verma 
is, you know, once she's confirmed, given she was one of the architects or was the architect of both Indiana and Kentucky, are they going to go in this direction, which I think goes even farther than than what's been allowed in Indiana, where the, the incentive isn't anything that you could say is, is harmful in any way. Um, and then, of course, you have this whole issue of do people really get it? Um, uh, Iowa was interesting. It was that you, if you, you didn't, nobody has a premium in the first year. And if you get um, preventive care, you don't have to pay a premium the next year. And, you know, when they, when they talked to people, they had no idea about it. Um, it, it, I've written about that as well. So I think it's, uh, you know, these, these programs, um, all really come what I would say from a very sort of paternalistic and, and somewhat insulting. Um, you know, when Seema Verma has said that these are all to give people paying is going to give people dignity. I think in, um, Kentucky, there were, you know, over a thousand people who came forward and, and really spoke to that and, and spoke to how they are working and they are doing everything they can. Uh, and they really were frankly insulted by this notion that, you know, they need Matt Bevan to tell them that they've got to go volunteer to earn their their dental care that they've been getting up till now through the program. So I guess either Matt Bevan or, or Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Going up to sort of maybe 5,000 feet with regard to sort of the confusion about what's out there, the difficulty for figuring even smart people to figure all of this out. When you sort of compare the landscape today to uh, the, the relatively simple world of 1965, I mean, today we've got Medicare and lots of different parts to it. We've got Medicaid, we've got Medicaid expansion, we've got CHIP, we've got different levels of actuarial value in the metallics. We've got subsidized exchange policies, unsubsidized ones. We've got multiple employee group options, some of which have HSAs that appeal to some age or income groups, but don't to others. And not only do we have churn, between some of these different structures. But I wonder just a sort of a, a, a bizarre sort of attempt to sort of over-segment the population. Now, when we've talked about this before, Frank, I, I think you, you remarked this was the single best argument for universal care um, <laughs> yes. to sort of cure that. But I, I, I wonder whether it's going to get worse before it gets better, Judy. I think it, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at these, you know, these proposals, you treat people between 100 and 138 different, you know, percent of the poverty line, people with incomes in that band differently, like in Indiana and Michigan in Iowa and a number of these states because they've taken the position that you can charge premiums to people in Medicaid at that rate and um, cut them off if they don't pay, whereas you can't do it for people below the poverty line. You have, you know, just, and then, you know, you go in the marketplace and <laughs> you get cost-sharing subsidies at different incomes and it's it's very complicated and it is, it is segmented. And we do a lot of, we have a project here that... Um, is sort of has its own website, but it's a, you know, something we've been doing for four years where we train large numbers of, of the navigators and assisters and, and brokers and agents and, you know, do these webinars where we get um, hundreds and hundreds of people who want to learn about the program. And sometimes when I'm, I'm doing this or reviewing the slides, I, I say, what have we done here? This is so complicated. 
Um, but it, it is, you know, getting people coverage and, and that's, you know, that's sort of part of what one would hope if you really wanted to move forward, you could think about, uh, simplifying, um, so people, you know, can, can easily be in the same plan with their families. Now you have, you know, kids could be in chip and parents in the marketplace and, and different rules about how you treat employer coverage. So yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And one of the things that I find most troubling of all is that, you know, and this is just uh, building on uh, a report I think released by Amitabh Chandra uh, this week saying that, you know, after two years in high deductible plans, there was no evidence that anyone uh, learned to shop better. And I think we're just seeing this increasing accumulation of evidence that even in the best case scenarios with respect to relatively um, well-educated, well-heeled uh, cons- healthcare, quote-unquote, consumers, there's so much difficulty in getting the consumer-directed health care vision to work. And it would seem that, if anything, a uh, the way that one would personalize care with respect to a lot of Medicaid populations would be to make things more easy to simplify rather than setting up more hurdles and more barriers. And I'm wondering if, if there are, you know, just to end perhaps on a brighter note, are there good examples out there of, of some states that have been trying to do things in that direction to sort of make the lived experience of being a Medicaid beneficiary uh, better as opposed to uh, making it uh, more difficult and arduous? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, I think there are states that really have embraced the expansion. My favorite example always was Kentucky before, you know, before its election of last year, because you had a state that under Governor Bashir set up an ex- its own exchange that was the model of simplicity being integrated with the Medicaid program so that it truly was a, a one-stop shopping experience, um, very friendly towards the, the assisters, the navigators who had their own um, ability to sign in and really help people through the process. Um, and you saw this amazing enrollment success, huge decrease in the uninsurance in a state that, you know, really has a, a lot of low-income people with a lot of health problems. Um, I think the figure was 700% increase in, in treatment for mental health and substance use disorders. So that was my best example. But I think, you know, we've seen others. California, with its state exchange, has certainly worked to um, simplify, make the shopping experience. I think they're, the, what they've done that's been really a model is the standardized plans so that all, you know, you every plan... Uh, at a silver level has the same sort of plan design. So you can compare on networks and things like that, not on kind of the deductibles are all sort of standardized at the meta level. So that's certainly been a model. Um, I, I think, you know, it's mostly the states that have embraced the ACA and set up their own exchanges that have been able to to do that. It's funny you, you mentioned that in, in class the other night, we opened up the Indiana website and the California website and, and tried to compare them, putting ourselves in, in the shoes of sort of ordinary consumers. And the California one sort of worked, whereas you got sort of into sort of halfway through the depth on, you know, the second page on the Indiana one, and suddenly you got booted out to healthcare.gov 
or something else. And it was just a mess. So one final question. We've taken up way too much of your time on a, on a Friday afternoon. But uh, back in December, you were quoted in a Politico story about the possible disappearance of Obamacare data. And I've also read stories of think tanks doing mass sort of dumps uh, down of federal information and so on. Is this a real concern you think uh, we should have? Uh, this, this is part of uh, making America uninformed again? <laughs> I'm really concerned about it. I mean, it, the work that we do on waivers really depends on the transparency that has been built up over the last, um, really since the ACA, and, and a provision in the ACA required that transparency, having all the evaluations, all the reports up on the on the website. Um, we've we've downloaded all of that information. Um, we've already seen the loss of some fact sheets on the more on the consumer facing side of healthcare.gov. Um, I, a woman in Oregon, I don't know, she must have read the political story too, called me up to tell me, you know, she can't find, um, reports that were put out near the end of the Obama administration on the benefits of the ACA state fact sheets. Um, so, you know, we, we did this, um, it in some ways, I'm hoping it's, it's just belt and suspenders and we're not going to need it, but, uh, we're, we're particularly concerned on the, on the waiver side. And then some of the reports like from Aspie and some, so on, it's really important that those continue. Although now people tell me there's the Wayback Machine or something. So you can uh, find things that uh, were on the internet before. But, you know, we'll see. So far, all the, you know, the guidance and the, that is all up there. The stuff that I was most concerned about was, you know, Medicaid guidance that is goes back to early 2000s and really is the the sort of nuts and bolts of how the program is is administered all the processes that are sub-regulatory but really important and and we don't want to lose those well if you do find that go back machine um put my name down for very early in november of last year Okay. <laughs> and that was the week in health law a big thank yes. you to miss solomon right. for joining us uh judy uh great fun to have you on the pod keep up the great work you're doing it was a real privilege to uh, to get to talk to you and folks can find you on twitter at judy cbpp j-u-d-y-c-b-p-p thanks again yes thank you bye we post our show notes at twill.com where you'll find a link to today's show notes uh, you can contact me on twitter at nicholas terry and frank you are at health pi on twitter thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week <laughs>